0: It's the Loose Filter Podcast, back again after hiatus with your host, Stuart Sims. And Anthony Campolo. This episode is more conversational in tone. We just have a few things we want to uh, talk about and share with you, uh, rather than do maybe a deeper
1: dive into a topic or something like that. Yeah, just kind of talk about some things that have been happening in the industry, some music we've been listening to, catch you up on what we've been listening to and find interesting.
0: The last episode that we posted a while back was talking about, uh, mediated reality, like versus empirical reality, right? How much time your headspace spends looking at the internet or screens or information you get through an intermediary, literally media, uh, and how that has, especially lately really sort of warped and distorted the world and led to some unexpected outcomes of mass media that, uh. Maybe even our most uh, prescient writers and thinkers in the 1960s and 70s didn't even foresee. So, Anthony, tell me, since we touched on that uh, a while back, where where are we on that? Have we shaken our heads and we're looking at?
1: Consensus reality, clearly and soberly, or uh... seems like we are going deeper down the rabbit hole. From where I am viewing it, from it definitely for me, talking about that stuff and coming up with some different you know words and drawing out the historical thoughts behind it it helped give me a framing to really think about more what's happening with our media and how it then filters into the culture. Because it's even if you are not watching the media, it's filters the culture in a way that you are seeing it. And depending on, you know, what your networks are, you'll see different parts of it. And We are all influenced by
0: it, whether we we choose it or not, right? Uh, So we'll revisit that soon. Uh, Probably mention it again at the end of this episode. We have a last segment will be upcoming topics, but uh, I certainly want to revisit it and talk about maybe in a little bit of detail some of the weirder things that have happened in the last year or so because of how much time our attention how much of our attention our conscious space is spent in mediated reality or with mediate information that's mediated
1: yeah which makes sense cuz they're selling our attention <sighs> Okay, so
0: we'll get into that when we get to that. But in music news, breaking music news. Okay, none of this is breaking. But well, I guess actually, actually the this first happened topic. This just the last week, yeah, yeah. Yours is breaking. But we wanted to just uh, touch on a few things that happened in the last few months that uh, we think are worth mentioning with regard to
1: uh, musical news. The first one, uh, Anthony, you wanted to talk about? So the Music Modernization Act was recently passed in the Senate, It's a massive bipartisan bill that got unanimous support, which is fairly rare in politics these days. And it's kind of three things in once. If you know how these massive bills work in Congress, it's kind of a patchwork of different things that get debated and all get shoved into one giant bill. So I'm going to break down the three different parts of it.
0: And this is, but before before you dive in, this is significant because like, what did it do in a, in a broad sense.
1: Yeah, so I would say what it does in a broad sense, the most important part of the bill is about how it changes streaming rights and how musicians get paid from streaming music. And that's really the core, I think, of what is important here and what's going to be the thing to watch as the bill gets implemented
0: and and copyright to be clear for those who may not pay attention to the details of legal matters and creative works is who owns something that people made from their brains <laughs> and 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 to what degree and and what that translates to in terms of compensation right is that a fair
1: sort of plain Absolutely, and then where it really gets thrown into the difficult areas is now everything's digital. So when you can infinitely reproduce anything, the question of how you get paid for those infinite reproductions becomes a very interesting question that most people didn't think they would have to have dealt with <laughs> twenty or forty years ago when the first legislation for these types of issues was written.
0: Right, and it, well, going even 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 back further when it, anything like it could have existed when music became a physical object right with recordings phonographs 78 and that's, you know and then lps uh and and that it's easy to understand that's a thing if i'm making a thing and selling a thing and it's it it it's easier to understand music, music as a commodity that way and that's what all this stuff is built on is what you're saying
1: yes exactly and the language in the bills written in the 70s are built around the physical medium because music's a thing exactly and now that's become upended because Within the last two or three years, Spotify and other streaming services, streaming services now account for more than fifty percent of all music industry revenue. So that's the dominant way the music industry brings in its revenue is now through streaming. People accessing information via uh-huh. the internet, basically.
0: Okay. So the
1: music modernization act addresses this how? What it ch- does is it creates a more standardized way for the copyright holders, which is the musicians, the songwriters, the producers, to create a bulk license that then is purchased by the streaming services. So what you want to get rid of is each label cutting specific deals with different streaming services. They're trying to standardize the process. So now all the copyright holders have a digital music license that then are being accessed by the streaming service and really this is about avoiding lawsuits this came to a head because a large music industry group sued spotify for 1.6 billion dollars and you had
0: when you say a music industry group what does that mean so the group i'm talking you're talking about a a a group that is paid for by music corporate corporations that own music companies
1: Exactly. So it would be the music labels themselves, their holding companies, the musicians. So a group.
0: They as a group brought a lawsuit against Spotify. Exactly. Because yes. Spotify was not giving them a big enough piece of the pie, not not a fair cut of the revenue and and what they were providing.
1: Yep. Yeah. It's it's really it's a pretty simple <laughs> you know fork in the road where they're saying hey you're making a ton of money with the streaming service you don't have a lot of overhead you're employing just you know a couple dozen coders. And you're bringing in billions of dollars. And to kind of think about it maybe a little uh,
0: like just an easy, in an easy graphical way, right? It used to be when before internet, <laughs> before digital uh, music, before music was information, when it was a thing, you had artists, you maybe had studio or whatever entity was responsible for uh, paying for the production of recordings, and then you had uh, maybe labels, so if we just imagine people in the stream of making a thing, and then you had uh, retailers, right? And people who made the physical product. So so now there's a, a, another person in the middle to getting to listeners. The people who make the thing
1: can't get directly to listeners. They have to go through Spotify. Exactly. And they've taken such a huge percentage of the listeners that this was bound to come to a head no matter what, because they... Got to, I think, set the terms to a certain extent because the music industry really ceded this territory to them by they, refusing to adapt to right? make to make so their long. own streaming heck, service. Heck, sure, yeah, sure. I think that they to made a they the made media. a strategic error in assuming that they could hold on to the physical media and that would remain the dominant way if, that people If only would buy someone it. had
0: said that around two thousand, you know, 12... Thirteen, you know, maybe they. No couldn't. one has ever said that. No, no one has ever, ever heard of Napster. Said that to the music industry. Well, if they hadn't paid it, if the music industry had paid attention, you know, I understand it takes a couple of years to realize Napster hits in nineteen ninety nine, right? But by like 0304, even me, not an industry expert, is saying we are witnessing the real time collapse of a multi billion dollar industry because they can adapt, and I realize like literally, you can. It's a big. Giant ship, and it's hard to turn. You can't just become a different thing, but also the obstruction and the the obvious refusal. They decided to, to try and sue it out of for, existence. Yeah, to to try to keep it from happening instead of riding it as long as they could, while simultaneously also investing money to move forward in whatever the transformation brought. So it brought us to a point here where Spotify is a new sort of person in the middle, but. They're a bottleneck because they have access to all these listeners. This is what the movie studios were afraid of with Netflix, exactly, and why they started undermining the crap out of Netflix several years ago and pulling licenses or you know uh, jacking up what they wanted to Netflix to pay for them because they realized, oh my gosh. So okay, so they realized Spotify's got all the a lot of the ears, half the ears, and uh, or a portion of half the ears. Half the streaming, you said.
1: Yeah, half is streaming, and then Spotify has the largest, the largest number. Chunk yeah, it that. has like fifty to something, yeah. fifty million users versus Apple's like 20 million twenty millions, kind of yeah. in those ranges. And
0: their position is like, hey man, you're just, you know, infrastructure. You're not adding value here. You're not. I mean, at least record companies they add value. They provide capital for the recordings or promotion. They you know might help help provide, you know, other support for artists, things like that. But Spotify is not. Not doing that. Netflix produces content. Now they're adding value. They're not just in the middle. one
1: interesting way that I think they do add value is that they have all of the data in terms of listening habits. And that's, I think, what the music industry is really realizing they've lost out on.
0: And so then the question would be, what's the fair piece of all of this for an entity like Spotify? Uh That's the essential question. Yeah. Okay. I don't mean to... Uh, make it too stupid but i want to make sure because it gets so like baroque yeah it's so a lot of quickly. legalese. yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. okay so sorry go ahead yeah After so so that
1: would be the the first third of the act is specifically about that how do we fix this whole streaming situation in a way that is good for everyone and lets musicians be paid and lets all of that work out the i think you know less interesting and less important portion of the act is actually what almost held the whole thing up so Another section called the Classics Act is about copyright on pre-1972 recordings and figuring out how that works with uh, online radio and satellite radio. So like Sirius XM, because they don't quite fit into the same mold where they were a physical piece of, you know, infrastructure like CDs or something like that. So well, and
0: broadcast range is is limited if it's over the air whereas if it's digital broadcast like Sirius, it's wherever you have the uh, you know, it's everywhere. Yep, exactly. Right, it's not limited by the physical force of your transmitter so to
1: speak. Yeah, so they Sirius XM was trying to hold up the bill because they felt that it was unfair that this was being put on them and not other broadcasters, like non-internet broadcasters. And so they almost held it up and actually took 150 musicians and songwriters, you know, like Paul McCartney and John Legend, all the most famous musicians you've ever heard of, wrote a mass letter saying, hey, this is good for everyone. This is like a minor kerfuffle in the bigger bill. You need to like step down and let the industry fix itself right now. So they ended up cutting a deal where... They agreed to pay half of the performance royalties, so they kind of just split the difference. All right. And then the third part. The third part I found really interesting. It was about the allocation for music producers. It's called the AMP Act. And producers have never been included in any copyright legislation specifically. Really? Yeah. That kind of blew my mind.
0: Okay, just to let everyone know, producers have played a significant role in recording since... The 1950s, I think it's fair to say, the early 50s, Mm -hmm. mid-50s, certainly. Norm Petty and Buddy Holly forward, probably earlier than that. That's as far back as my brain can pick, though. So that's over half a century. Producers are critical in the creative process of, of, of actually realizing recording.
1: Yes, and this is producers and engineers, both of them together. So production, Uh the sort of the act of
0: production, the roles that are played in the booth and following sessions, right? During and following
1: sessions. Exactly. So in the past, there's been 45% of performance royalties have gone to all musicians, rights holders, and producers. And so producers... So they've been in the pot with everybody. Exactly, yeah. And so now... They are trying to separate the different roles out, essentially, so that they'll be the musicians, and then also like the the songwriter holders, and then the performance, the people who realized the thing itself. So it's really pretty interesting. So what
0: we have right now is basically you get songwriting credits. That's the authorship rights. And then whoever played on it or helped make it share in the – performance or mechanical rights. Exactly. Right? And so producers now, like the songwriters, Uh are being separated out because their work is distinctive from, say – uh, well, like uh, because I'm going to talk about it later on the podcast, it's in my brain. Beat it, right? Quincy Jones is working with Michael Jackson. Eddie Van Halen comes in for a day, lays down a guitar track. That's significantly different mm-hmm. than what Quincy Jones' role in that album was. So I think this is a great uh evolution of this and recognizing what actually goes on in that
1: creative process, right? For sure, especially when you look at hip-hop and how the producer is – almost always the dominant artistic force behind it. So I think this really does track with what we've been seeing over the last couple of decades, where not only have producers always been important, now they're almost becoming dominant in the sense of they own most of what is being done on these tracks.
0: That's a great segue, actually, because the next news item I wanted to talk about was the very notable, if you pay attention to these kinds of things, uh, 2018 Pulitzer Prize in music, which was uh, uh, an historic choice, uh, an unprecedented choice in several important ways, I think, went to a very, very deserving uh, uh, and and, uh, terrific uh, uh, and substantial work of music, I think, which is
1: Kendrick Lamar's album, damn. Which I'm stoked on. I've been saying since Good Kid Matt City a couple years ago that Kendrick's the best rapper alive, the best musician in a lot of ways alive. And what, what is notable,
0: there are a few notable things I wanted to, to mention about this, but uh, the first is that this is the, uh, as you might imagine, it was quite the conversation in the musical sphere because the Pulitzer Prize normally goes to composed works of music that are first performed in the year that the prize is for, uh, that the previous year. So 2017 for the 2018 prize. Um, so have albums won in the past? Yes, one time prior. So this isn't the first album that's won. One other time. Uh, there, there, there are two other kind of exceptions that would pop out if you looked at the list of Pulitzer Prize winners. But let me just read uh, from the last decade... <laughs> the names of the Pulitzer Prize winners to see how many you or uh, others might recognize. I mean, those who know will know some of these, but you would really have to be dialed in to know all of these composers. So last 10 years, we're looking at Steve Reich, very famous, overdue prize, Jennifer Higdon, Zhu Long, Kevin Putz, Carolyn Shaw, John Luther Adams, Julia Wolfe, Henry Threadgill, do Yun. None of those are household names. Yeah. I think I knew three of those. Yeah. Uh, I think, let me see. Uh, well, I knew one, two, three, four, five, six, six of them. I knew six of them, but a couple of them I only knew because they won the Pulitzer and I pay attention to that because I, you know, it's a lot of my gig as a musician as I work in that world. But, uh, uh, Conceptually, it's important to think about, right, because we mentioned it uh, a lot talking about this copyright law, but there's a substantial difference that we haven't grappled with well that we talk about a lot on the podcast between composed music that's like written down and intended to be created live.
1: Yeah, performed by a group of musicians
0: from this source text. From
1: that source
0: text, but created spontaneously in the same space as the listener's. Uh, And you can record that. You can record a live performance, Uh uh, uh, but it's still a recording of a live performance. And that's the the distinction I'm going to draw about the earlier Pulitzer Prize winners. The difference then when you're creating a recording like we mentioned with the producer, that heavy participation really started like we've talked about extensively in other episodes with Brian Wilson and George Martin via the Beach Boys and uh, the Beatles respectively in the later 1960s. And that practice rapidly evolved to all sorts of complexity uh, of of recording source material and then sculpting it in the studio to make tracks that are not recordings of something that was done live or even could be done
1: live, right? Exactly, and is the way almost all popular music has been made since, since then. Yeah,
0: absolutely, to a degree that uh, would sort of, Kind of knock people out if they realized how sculpted, like how inorganic and created something that to them feels totally natural and holistic and, uh this wonderful musical experience is, how Frankenstein-y it actually is in the craft of the thing. Yeah, it could take months to produce a three-minute track. With, you know, 15 people being hands-on at some point in in really important ways. Um, so, 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 okay. So that's the distinction I wanted to emphasize in that rambly way. The previous winners that would jump out at you, if you look, 1997, went Marsalis, primarily known as a jazz musician, uh, but also uh, quite an active career, especially early on as a classical, uh, uh, performer on trumpet, Won for a piece called Blood on the Fields, but that's called an oratorio and it was written down, composed and, and played live even though it contains sections of jazz, heavily jazz influences, idiom that are improvised, so it's not entirely notated, but it's still composed, written down, performed live. But in 2007, free jazz uh, innovator Ornette Coleman, finally, like Steve Reich, (laughs) finally, won a Pulitzer Prize and won for his album Sound Grammar. And it is an album. But the album's a recording of a live performance, Right. and yeah. all the compositions are by Ornette Coleman. Now, granted, Coleman's musical style is has a lot of, shall we say, non intention in it. Without going down the rabbit hole of sort of, yeah, it's meant it's, to be a bit intuitive. If you know what free jazz is, you know who Ornette Coleman is, then you understand what I'm saying when I say they're composed. But they're, you know, so it's sort of a gray area. I understand, but it's recording of a live performance. Kendrick's album, the the uh, damn is not is not that. It's created. It's one of the
1: Frankensteiny things. Yeah, it's produced. It's made in a similar sense to what most popular music is made, where you have multiple producers, multiple songwriters, large cast of musicians coming in for different tracks. It's Really, a huge production involves a lot of people to put together.
0: And when the the tracks are reproduced live, and when he performs them live, while the live performances recordings of of his that I've heard or that he shared himself, they're amazing. Uh, they're <laughs> amazing. They're not what they're
1: not the recorded version. Yeah, the reimaginings of the track through what you can do with live instrumentation, but they don't try and just recreate exactly. They'll just have them. Rap to a backing right. track, which is what most rappers do live. They have a band that <laughs> actually plays music.
0: Well, and you know, like the Beatles, then radical idea in 1967 of uh, we're going to create an album that we that never we play, never
1: could, or never
0: intend to reproduce live. <gasps> you know that, that an album is not a reproduce a reproduction. You know, so
1: that's where that started. And they can't make uh, us go on tour for 360 days right. a year.
0: So, so 1967. It only took. It only took until uh, uh, 2018. You know, for the. the <laughs> And surprised to catch up to that. But so that's the first thing I wanted to highlight that's that's really notable and I wanted to take some time to focus on it because that's a big deal. And I didn't see any commentary about that. I didn't read anybody who talked about that part of it specifically, and that was the first thing that occurred to me after. Oh, hey, a hip hop album, and and that's the other notable is that yeah, it in wasn't the a, style of of hip hop. It's a first.
1: Yeah, I think the fact that it was a hip hop album and not a rock album is is really significant because it shows how. That whole part of the culture kind of got passed over almost that before the Pulitzer even started recognizing, hey, there's great artistic work happening in the popular sphere. We've already moved past rock to a certain extent. And the
0: the jury, the jurors who selected it, who all spoke to their enthusiasm for this choice and their unanimity in making an unusual choice like this and changing maybe the nature of what the prize is going forward and Mm -hmm. how it engages with culture and what it means to the culture too, possibly – does reframe that depending on what subsequent jurors decide and what those conversations are each year. But each one of them uh, who did speak about it said uh, that they felt um, this album is not only such a great um, dive into the African-American experience and hip hop as a style and just it's so musically rich in its uh, roots, <laughs> the appearance of roots in it and et cetera. Uh, but they acknowledge freely exactly what you said, the cultural significance, obviously, the enduring cultural significance of hip hop as an artistic, um, what do you call it? I mean, a movement. At this point, I would have to like put it on a chart next to like modernism. I mean, it's it's beca- it, it's not a conceptual thing like that is, but it's such a a, a pan practice and approach
1: yeah it's a it's a worldwide movement and it goes beyond the music so that's why what you would hear a lot when it was first coming out in the late 80s early 90s they were saying hip-hop's a culture and they would talk about the different parts of the culture with tagging and and dancing and the actual rapping parts and what, what was the fourth one
0: uh b-boy we got b-boying mcing. Yeah. uh um, DJing, oh, DJing yeah. and, and, uh, uh, graffiti graffiti. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So the, the uh, next thing I wanted to mention about that, that it raised to me, um, and it's something that I don't hear talked about often in wherever places these things may be talked about, but, uh, this to me highlighted and the conversation that resulted, as you can imagine, there were a lot of cringy comments coming from the classical music world and, uh, they don't but, know what to do with it. A lot, a lot of great ones too. I have to, I have to say, there were there, the two folks who were also finalists, uh, white male composers. Uh, if that contextualizes this in any way for you in our culture mo- moment, Michael Gilbertson and Ted Hearn, both said that they were honored to be finalists next to Kendrick Lamar. They didn't see any issue, and they understood why it won and thought uh, a fantastic work of music. Won, in fact, one of them said he. What would, how would he, uh, an interview, they asked him, how would you react if you had the opportunity to collaborate with Kendrick Lamar? He said, if I ever had the honor, I would absolutely take it. Like there no question. Are you kidding? This guy's amazing. <laughs>
2: DNA, I just went again, then went again, like Wimbledon I serve. Yeah, that's him again. The sound, the engine, in, is it's like a bird. You see fireworks, and carpet tires skirt, the boulevard. I know how you work, I know just who you are. See, use it, use it, use it. <laughs> Bitch, Your almost probably switch inside your DNA. Problem is, all that sucker shit inside your DNA. Daddy probably snitch, heritage inside your DNA. Backbone don't exist, burn inside a jellyfish, I it. Agree, most definitely don't tolerate the front. Shit I been through, probably offend you. This is Paula's oldest son. I know murder, conviction, firmness, boosters, burglars, ballers, dead, redemption, scholars fathers, dead, with kids and I wish I was fit. Forgiveness, yeah, 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 yeah. Soldiers, DNA, born inside the beast, my expertise, check out inside.
1: The first thing that I thought of back when I heard this award was given is if you follow the Grammys at all. You may remember when Macklemore won a Grammy and was in the same category as Kendrick and actually dedicated the award to him. This has happened a couple of times on the Grammys in the last couple of years where the winner of the award almost apologizes for for beating the person they think really should have won. Because they recognize that they won because of how they
0: resonate with audiences. And, you know, I used to – I used to – even reflexively scoff at popularity. I don't at all anymore. Popularity means that an artist is resonating with a large audience, and it means it scales. It, and and that can be terrific. I mean, I guess depending on what they're putting out into the world, but hopefully it's terrific. And and also
1: extremely hard to do. Yeah, much harder to do than quote unquote serious musicians <laughs> would would lead on would
0: would credit at all. I yeah, think. Mm-hmm. and and also vastly harder even still to do well yes exactly like like the older i get the more that i conduct orchestras and bands the more that i and you know i do a lot of new music and still we're coming we got two new commission pieces coming in this year uh gonna be a lot of fun they're all kind of complicated stuff it's super fun i love it it's such a uh, art music that composed music is such a unique world of experience apart from recorded music popular music But like lately, you know, my, my, one of my playlist jams has been essential Michael Jackson. And I like, it's like I, I revisit artists like that. And the older I get, the more I know, the more experience I have as a musician, uh, the, 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 the broader and deeper my frame of reference, my respect deepens for for what actually... I mean, it, it, not that I didn't love it before. You I mean, loved it before, but you love it even up, more. I
1: grew up in the 80s, for goodness sake. But uh, but but yeah, and I respect it deeply. You come to appreciate the craft beyond, oh, this is a good beat, and I have fun listening to it. Exactly, and also just just understanding it in an analytical way,
0: you get a sense of, wow, that's amazing craft. When you really dissect something that is simple but it's amazingly crafted, you, re- you realize the elegance <laughs> in its simplicity rather than that it's like facile or, or dumb or, or unsophisticated.
1: Yeah, I always I say guess. that writing a good three chord song is one of the hardest things to do because to have it be just a simple three chord song and still resonate with people requires a level of craft
0: like Brian Eno's story about composing the uh, Windows 3 uh, op- operating sound like 1995. Uh-huh. The s- six second composition they paid him like a million dollars and he was like yeah, this is going to be the easiest thing I ever did for the most money I've ever got and it took him a year <laughs> and when he went to Redmond to the committee that he was supposed to meet with he brought like 90 something versions or something. He was like I think They're like on. play the first five and we'll <laughs> decide. No he said they took it very seriously and they no, went through all of them and they were really engaged in the process and he said they were uh, essential in arriving at what they did. But he said it turns out to make a complete musical thought in like six or seven seconds is really darned hard. Uh, and and the analogy I always think of is the uh, y- the old story about decades ago, the newspaper ran the short short story contest and it was write a short story in
1: eight words or fewer. Oh yeah, actually Wired does this every month. Yeah, right, it's, right it's six, it's been, six it's been picked yeah. up uh,
0: years mm-hmm. ago, but this was the old story, you know, comes from like in the uh, 50s. I don't, I, I, we'd have to look it up, but... Uh, the, story, the point of the story, I remember, is that Ernest Hemingway sent in a submission. Have you heard this? It sounds and, kind of familiar. And, and his story is six words, for sale, baby shoes, never worn. And you just take a couple of seconds to let that one land, and you go, oh,
1: my God, what a gut punch, right? Oh, up. yeah. No, I have heard this before, yeah. actually.
0: And I think, how long would it take? And you Just try. Those of you listening, you Turn off the podcast now. Try to, between zero and eight words, come up with something that's going to punch anybody in the gut. Or give them joy on the same degree as those six <laughs> words that Ernest Hemingway managed to link together. And they're not complicated
1: words. They're not fancy but it, words. It, but it paints a picture.
0: But, whoo, and and just hits you in a place that um, resonates deeply and immediately to your human experience and that's that's the thing that popular art
1: great popular art gets at that's the best definition i've ever heard of poetry which is that it's about how you get the most information into the least amount of words
2: living lovely just love me i want to be with you
0: so the me. thing I was saying here on my second point thank goodness we made notes because wow, <laughs> I love our digression I hope you're finding these digressions interesting I'm having fun uh, thinking about them and talking about them but uh, uh, thank goodness as I was saying we have outlines so the this was w- w- something that's been chewing at me lately and like I was saying these sort of divergent reactions there were a lot of great reactions from the concert music world too. And of course, over on the popular music side, people were just thrilled as heck, man. I mean, how could you not be? It's a great, uh, and it, it was a sincere recognition. It was not uh, artificial reading what the jurors had to say about it. Um, they listened, they got the album, yeah, they, got they it. knew it, and and they were very sincere about uh, wh- 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 what they thought about it and why they chose it. So, um, uh, But the concern that I've been having, and this comes from my perspective as a a professor too, somebody who's at a university and responsible for helping to shape curriculum in an evolving way and and thinking what it should do and be about and so on, is the degree – what concerns me is the degree, the radical degree of separation of formal musical study and scholarship – from actual general cultural practice.
1: So how much the music academics are paying attention to what most people are listening to?
0: Not even that limited. Like literally what a music school curriculum mostly looks like and what like the, the national organization that accredits that for universities at all levels, the National Association of Schools of Music, what they think of music degree, a bachelor music degree, what skills are fundamental and how musicianship is not only best developed, which personally I mostly agree with actually, but then uh, say for at an undergraduate level in the upper division, once basic musicianship is developed in a detailed way, uh, how can those skills legitimately be applied? And for a lot of reasons that set, I think, is more limited than it should be. Is that clear? Was that clear? I mean, Absolutely, I know yeah. you personally
1: know what I'm talking about because we talk about this all the time, but was that? do you think that was clear in a general sense? I think so. I think what most people get is that when you go to get, classical quote-unquote classical music training and you become classically trained. This is something my, my dad would always talk about when he heard that I had a music degree. I, I would degree. even say
0: formally trained uh-huh. because if you want to get formal training, it will be classical training. It's sort of redundant because where are you going to go to get formal non-classical
1: training? Berklee College of Music in Boston. Where else? That's about it. <laughs> I mean, there's probably some places in San Francisco. I mean,
0: other big music schools have programs. But the core and the thrust, and I promise you, of their identity, if you look at their websites, is the formal musical training is concert music, what we would sort of call
1: classical music. But but that that's formal music training. That's my That is what it is. Exactly. And I think that someone like my dad, who doesn't know much about this whole world, he still knows that being quote unquote classically trained, it does mean something. It means that you learned a very core, detailed craft, detailed and knowledge, fundamental. I would say that they know that. That's kind of the bottom level. Like, if you want to get better at music, like, this is what you do. Formal training. Yes. Which means classical training. Exactly. And
0: uh, that's what where my brain has been. Boys, a, a, uh, Well, no, it's not a garage because it's on the point. It's to the separation that the formal training as a foundation and that development of musicianship is right on. I agree. It is. It develops so many great tools. But then we have to figure out ways to allow young people who are in music programs, to apply them in a wider variety of ways. Like songwriting should be as legitimate a craft in a formal musical institution setting, in a university, in a conservatory. Well, maybe not, I don't know conservatories, but in a university, certainly school or department of music. It's
1: another way of thinking about composing. It is composing, and it's the
0: kind of composing that most of the world listens to every day. That's my point about practice, cultural practice. Most People for not just recently, uh, way back ever since there's been anything like popular music, or as far as we can tell, folk music, its strophic is the basic form. It's in repeated chunks, which verses, which is different from
1: a symphony or exactly. a concerto.
0: Symphonic music would be the other big kind, right? than strophic, and it's developmental. It doesn't repeat chunks. It has ideas that are repeated, but they're metamorphosed and changed over time. It's more like a uh, a novel. It's a longer yeah, narrative. Yeah, novel
1: versus like a short
0: story. Which has a thing, then bam, bam, there mm-hmm. it is, right? And so it's up front. So like a song,
1: verse, chorus, verse, chorus. Which is why I think it actually is a better stepping stone to get up to writing a symphony. It really doesn't make any sense to flip it. <laughs> yeah,
0: that would be an example of a detail that could shift in the core development of musicianship that would point in the other direction, leverage where popular cultural practice is and has been for so long to develop better concert music too, more interesting concert music.
1: Yeah, because everyone has heard songs. They grew up with songs. It it resonates with them in a way that it's just the, the form makes sense. So once you learn to work in that realm, you start to develop your different techniques and you start to figure out how to put chords together and melodies and rhythms, and then you can scale it up.
0: So I'm hoping that in in its way, however large or small, this prize going to a recorded uh, a piece of reco- a composition that's recorded, it's a sign of the times, is well. It's a nudge to say this is legitimate and and substantial, and your kids that are in your theory two class and acing ear training and are great percussionist or trombone players or cello players or or. or Baritones in the choir, or whatever, or guitarists in the classical guitar, or whatever, but they just want to make
1: beats. Or Because this is the music that inspires them.
0: Yes, and and that's the idiom through which they feel they can most naturally speak. You talk about compositional voice, let someone, if they say that's what it is, my goodness, honor it. Go, okay, then let's make you the best X, Y, or Z that you can possibly be. Because there are ways to make great beats and bad beats (laughs) and well-composed and poorly composed beats, just like anything else. Music all has to be created and crafted, and there are good ways and crummy ways and interesting ways and boring ways to do and
1: blah blah and that's my whole point on that one so uh the last thing so you're saying it's good we didn't give a pulitzer to soldier boy
0: (laughs) we try to stay away from the hate on this podcast
1: anthony i love soldier boy's (laughs) music i just wouldn't give it a pulitzer we 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 uh uh truly i am
0: gonna i am gonna i am gonna sort of violate our prime directive a little bit it's not really prime directive, but it's it's an unspoken focus when we talk about topics and and within a topic or something this stuff that we want to talk about we try to um it was this was a while back right we were talking about how do we we wanted to kind of like rail on something
1: or we wanted to make like a good and and bad and talk about our least favorite tracks and favorite tracks
0: and you know i mean I feel like we talk about music fairly well and vividly, and that means, like any great critic, it's always fun to read a great takedown, right? Roger but, Ebert, the th- best. Oh, man. Yeah. Holy cow. But but that's not, I don't,
1: yeah, I, I like liking things, to quote uh, Abed from. Well, Community. there's too much good content to engage with bad content. Also. Right. Right.
0: And, and that was, and so we generally just try to talk about things we like and why we like them mm. and just not talk about the things that we maybe don't think are, are worth. Talking about not that you can get to everything, uh, but, uh, uh, there is one thing coming up that I'll mention because I was disappointed. So know that that's coming. But the last bit here is that, uh, uh, oh, this is the last thing I think this, and this is something you and I've been talking about from a different angle, uh, lately. I think this award deeply challenges the notion of like the great man narrative or the singular genius yeah, that uh-huh. in music we've had since Beethoven and, and ETA Hoffman's essays that Lionized Beethoven and 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 his own uh, Beethoven's own assertion of creative control, which was uh, uh, hugely innovative at the time. But uh, because a studio uh, musical creation, like you mentioned, is deeply, like we were talking about, is deeply collaborative.
1: I compare it to more like making a film. Kendrick is almost like a film director in that he's bringing together a team of people that are collectively producing this work.
0: Yeah, and this is what challenged a lot of folks about this award. Because when a composer gets it, even though no composer does it alone— the work is obvious, more, uh, uh, hold on, let me back up. I'm not using the word obviously. I retract. mostly a product of an individual. It, and it's more clearly the product of one individual's musical imagination. Uh-huh. So it makes, it, it makes there's a clearer line in a lot of people's minds to uh, this person made this, so this person gets the award. Yes. and that's that's been more clearly defined until now because I checked the credits just to uh illustrate how collaborative and how much this is the gray area there are uh ni- it was created in the studio right there are 19 people who pr- participated in the producer role two are listed as uh, uh executive producers uh uh Anthony uh top Dog. Pipeth and Dr. Dre listed as executives, but there there are 19 people and credited as uh, uh, Kendrick Lamar is credited as lead writer on all 14 tracks, but among those 14 tracks, he's listed alongside 23 other people. Now there's some overlap between the folks listed as songwriters and listed as producers, obviously because that's like in television writing. That's an overlap awesome between songwriters and performers, I think as well. But we're still talking about at least. Listed in uh, credited creative roles. Yes. Two, three dozen people.
1: I just let that hang out there. Yeah, put the
0: team on your back. <laughs> you talk about gray area though, right? In terms of the idea of the prize going to a person.
1: Yeah, and that's why I think it makes sense to think of it almost more like a film because when you give an Oscar to Quentin Tarantino, I mean, he knows and we know that he didn't. He's not the person who made that movie. The only single person, right, right. Uh, so, so uh,
0: yeah, I guess there's. I guess it happens in film all the time, but uh, it's interesting. It's interesting to see then. I guess music moving over into that space. Mm-hmm. Uh, but television uh, obviously is is hugely collaborative, and that model seems to have also moved over to film, especially with shared universe or franchised films, where even though you may have a writer or writers, you have a writer's room.
1: Yeah, it's almost like a, a Wikipedia film that <laughs> it's like a group <laughs> nah, of people all sort of editing and tweaking and adding things here and there, and saying this works, this doesn't work, right. and, and you, you used to be able to take your ego out of it. It's it's probably a very challenging challenging form of, of creative work.
0: It is. And people still do have authorial control. So like, whoever is credited as a screenwriter is the person who did write the script, but they might've gotten the whole outline from, you know, a room that they were part of. Right. And, uh, there may be some decisions that they wanted to say stick to and they, that the whatever, but, uh, uh, this is the model television has worked on for a long time, yes, mm-hmm. and it was out of developed out of necessity because of the production schedules of formerly of broadcast networks. You had to produce so much content you had to have a large team of writers, ten to twelve, usually for any kind of weekly show, and then everybody quote broke episodes, ideas, threw out ideas, decided which ones to run with, outlined the thing, and then it was passed off to one or two people to actually write the teleplay, the script itself. And they got the credit, even though everybody else is. And that's why you see 10 people listed as producers.
1: right? Yeah. And the if you let's do the Simpsons DVD commentary, they really draw out this process and kind of outline how it happens in practice.
2: Nobody pray for me. It's been a day for me. Yeah, yeah. Remember syrup sandwiches and crime allowances But that's a nigga with some counterfeits But now I'm counting this Parmesan with my accountant lives. In fact, I'm down in this say with my boobay taste Tastes like Kool-Aid for the analyst. Girl, I can buy your waist.
0: that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. You can find us online at loosefilter.com or on SoundCloud under the Loose Filter podcast. We'll have a new episode up for you next week. New episodes will be posted on Wednesdays, so if you haven't subscribed, please be sure to check back often. Next week, we'll be talking about music that we like. We hope we have some interesting and unexpected choices for you. See you next week.